uh, as kind of a reminder, um, the setting of this entire letter is dealing with this subject of, of suffering. Peter's writing to people, he's writing to Christians who are suffering, um, mainly because of uh, their faith, they're being persecuted because of their faith in Christ, uh, whatever that may look like, whether it's physical, whether it's um, verbal, or whether they can't find jobs because people won't give work to Christians. There's just a, a lot of things are going on. They're suffering because of their faith. And if you remember, that's the major theme of First Peter. There's this idea of suffering going on, but the theme that Peter applies to that, we see in chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, Stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in God's grace and suffering. And that theme of standing firm, that's the marching orders for us as Christians when we encounter suffering. And that command to stand firm began to take shape in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where Peter gives the standard of Christian living. If you'll remember, he told us that we're to live like an alien, right? Not like a space person, but like this world is not our home. And it's not. It's people who profess Christ. We're to live like an alien, we're to fight like a soldier, and we're to behave, most importantly, as a representative of Christ in this world. Last week we saw Peter first apply that to the issue of authority. Today, in verses 18 through 25... Peter applies this way of living to the issue of unjust suffering. And there's still this idea of authority that comes even there. Um, myself included, um, I don't like the idea of suffering, do you? I don't think none of us do. And, and this sermon's not from that standpoint of like it. We, we don't. I don't like difficulty. If I'm perfectly honest, I don't like difficulty of any kind. You don't either, right? I want to design my life, and I want to have it work according to my sovereign plan, right? That's the way we all think. All of us in this room, we, we have difficulty with that. We don't like it. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which was a uh, well-known uh, British pastor in the latter part of the 1800s, says this about this passage. Passages like this are not just to give illumination to our heads, but to guide our feet as all of us walk through the darkness of this fallen world. All of us face suffering in some way. So if you're looking at your handout there, you see the main idea is submitting to God's will in unjust suffering. Now, I want to clarify something. I may say this again. There's this issue here that's being dealt with of unjust suffering. But these principles... Of submitting ourselves can be applied to any kind of suffering. I don't think it's limited just to this, even though this is the specific area he's dealing with. We can apply these principles to all areas of suffering in our lives. So if you're looking at your handout there, see verses 18 through 20, the Christian response to unjust suffering. He says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Notice what he says here, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So there's this idea of suffering, unjust suffering that's coming here. He says, servants, you be subject to your, your masters. Now, we, we don't need to forget chapter 2, verse 13. If you will, look there. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
Chapter 2, verse 13 is the big general statement that covers from chapter 2, verse 13 all the way through chapter 5. And last week, it was being subject as citizens, right? Remember us talking about that. Today, it's being subject as servants. Now, I'll, I'll deal with that servant thing and what that means and how that applies to us. He says, servants, notice what he's saying here, be subject. That's the general big statement for the Lord's sake. Now, notice what he's saying here. The word servant refers to household servants. That's what's going on in this time period. However, these were not just household employees. They were actually, they were slaves. They belonged as property to their owners. And our first thought may be, slavery is wrong, right? Is that what's going through your mind right now? That's wrong. Owning slaves is wrong. And to that I would say, absolutely, that's wrong. Slavery is wrong. But I want to... Clear some things up here, and by no means am I condoning slavery. Don't leave here thinking that's what I'm saying, but I want you to understand something. In the first century, slavery, overwhelmingly, was not based on skin color. Okay? This is not Civil War type slavery, okay? Don't take the Civil War slavery and try to move that over and put that on top of this and look at that as this. That's not what's going on. In the first century, most slavery was a result of people selling themselves into being servants to pay off a debt. Now, there were other uh, times, like when one country would conquer another and they would take all the spoils and those people would come under their... they'd be subject to them because of that. But overwhelmingly, most slavery was because someone sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt they owed. They were working off a debt as they served. And if the children were born to them during this time... They were serving this capacity. The children also became servants as well. And you're going, well, that's, that's a raw deal, right? And so the people that Peter is addressing here are servants who happen to be Christians. That's who he's talking to here. Notice that Peter calls on the servant to be subject to their, to their masters. The word subject we talked about last week means to submit yourself, to, to obey. The idea is the same as we said last week. Last week we said the idea was about honoring God by honoring the authority that He's a place in our lives. That's what we talked about last week. So Peter says here, be subject, obey, submit yourselves to your masters. And notice what he says there, with all respect. Some of you had translations that used the word fear. Fear here is the, the real idea. But, listen to me carefully. In every instance, if you read the letter of 1 Peter... In every instance, fear is directed toward God and not toward human beings. In fact, Peter speaks against humans, uh, or fearing human beings in chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14. The fear here is directed toward God. Does everybody understand that? It's not directed toward the human beings. It's fear that is directed toward God, respect toward God. In other words, the reason servants were to submit to their masters is because of their relationship with God. That's why they were to submit. Notice next that Peter tells servants that their submission is not dependent on the character of their masters. Notice that. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the what church? The unjust. Unjust has the idea of being uh, corrupt, and in some cases lacking moral character. It would not be unusual for this particular master to, to maybe physically abuse their servants and to force them into harsh, unfair conditions. 
some physical abuse. Not that we can uh, say 50% was and 50% wasn't. That's not what I'm saying. But overwhelmingly, they were forced into harsh, unfair conditions. Now, hear what Peter's saying. Submit yourselves to those masters. Not the good ones, but to the unjust ones. What was a slave to do about this unjust suffering he was going through? What was he to do? Was he to fight back? Uh, attempt to stage a revolt with other slaves? Get on Facebook and go on a rant about his boss? Was he to do that? Was he to get on Twitter and tweet bad things about his boss? Was he to do that? You understand, I'm trying to move that to our day and time. Peter commands them to do the one thing that would come least naturally to them. But the thing that would best display the gospel is to submit during unjust suffering. I want to clarify something. As I noted last week, this command to submit and obey would only apply, listen, would only apply as long as the master did not demand them to sin. You remember that last week? Your master calls upon you, this person you're serving, to sin and go against God. That's the dividing line. That's where you look. When he calls on you to do something like that, that's where you say no. Now you've got to understand, Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. He's, he's, and he's recognizing the injustice that was done to servants. He's not dismissing that. He's not saying that that did not happen. And he isn't condoning slavery. But he is saying in those times of injustice, Christian... Servant, your responsibility is to live submissively with respect and fear toward God and His authority because He's placed those people in those positions. Even in a sinful, broken world, authority is still being exercised through those unjust leaders. Be respectful, not just to those who are gentle and good, but to those who are unjust. Here's what we need to understand. We need to understand the purpose of what Peter is saying here. He's saying to the Christian that their relationship to God, listen, their relationship to God is more important than being a social activist. And there's a lot of things I could say here, particularly in our area when you see things on the news. I'm not saying that we don't speak out against abortion, because I said that last week, right? That still holds true this week. And I won't back off on that. But the most important thing here is that our relationship to God is more important than being a social activist. Peter's aim is to teach Christian slaves how to honor God, given their, if you will, their lot in life, which here involves how to handle persecution in a godly manner. That's what Peter's saying. Here is how you handle unjust suffering as a Christian. Now, write this verse down, and I'm going to read this. This will be for you later to reflect on. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 17 through 24. This is dealing with this principle regarding servants. And here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. As the Lord has assigned to each one, did you hear that? As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. 
Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Here's what Paul is saying about this issue we're dealing with. A person's lot in life is assigned to him by who? God. For that reason, the main goal is to obey and glorify God in that situation in life. And if that opportunity to become free, he says, even though your slave presents itself, you take it. Alright? But of utmost importance is representing Christ well so that the gospel will not be slandered. That's the point. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Further uh, verses that we can look at to help us with this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. It says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters, listen to this, as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. That's pretty clear, right? Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, except for sin, them calling you to sin. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, Always challenging. That's what that means. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior, in every respect. So you're going, all right. I mean, them verses are pretty clear, right? So you're going, you're kind of scratching your head at this point. Let me say this up front. You ever heard that saying, don't shoot the messenger? That applies here, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. Do you take issue with this? You take it up with the Lord. How does this apply to you? Right? You're saying, we're not slaves. We're not servants. We don't sell ourselves into servitude. I think that might still go on at times. And there's a lot more legal things in place to to keep that in check. But how does this apply to us? That's a good question to ask, right? Because this is certainly not us, but so how does this apply to us? Let me read you what one commentator said, and then we'll try to, from that, make some application. Here's what one commentator I read says about this. He says, Keep in mind that if Peter could tell slaves who had no rights to be loyal, to be loyal to and to work faithfully for their masters, how much more would he urge honest and faithful work upon Christian employees of our day? Oh, do you see where, how that comes in our play for us? Servants, slaves to their masters there, that comes over in our day and time applies to us as what? In the secular work environment, the people we answer to in positions of authority over us in our work. Upon Christian employees of our day who enter voluntarily into their employment, who can bargain with their employers. See, they couldn't do that in that day. But now we can do that, right? And who can terminate their relationship to a company at any time. Let me put that in English for you. You got a lot better now than they did then. Right? But the principle still applies. Submit to those who are in positions of authority. For what? The Lord's sake. If this is the case, then we might... Reflect on our working conditions. Have you ever had a boss mistreat you? Yep. Require you to work under what you thought were unreasonable conditions? Some of you right now are the grumbling. It's 
underneath your breath. Not fulfill a promise to you. Not pay you what you deserved. Have you ever worked for someone who was not honest? Did you know that you must still submit to him as an employer? You're going, no way. Why would I do that? Glad you asked. Number one, because God commands it. He commands that. And as we have seen in the verses prior to these, unbelievers may be won to Christ by your godly living. If you're one of those employees that runs around trying to stir up a ruckus all the time because of unfair treatment, if that's your goal in your place of work and you keep things stirred up and you're claiming to be a Christian, how do other people look at you? I'm just saying. Despite how much your boss or your work conditions may frustrate you, this... These verses show us that a grumbling, rebellious Christian employee, that should be an oxymoron. That should not be us. You should do the best you can at that job to the glory of God. That's what Peter's calling us to do here. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Notice what Peter says here. He says, for this, this meaning being subject to unjust people, is a gracious thing. Some translations use the word finds favor. The idea is that a favor or reward, it is a good reward. Do you find it, I I found it interesting that Peter puts finding God's favor, His grace, right next to suffering unjustly. Did you notice that? To submit when suffering unjustly is a gracious thing. There's a gracious reward. Notice though, when mindful of God. It is a favorable, gracious reward when the Christian is mindful of God. When he understands that to submit to those that God has placed in authority is actually to submit to who? For the Lord's sake, to submit to God. It is a favorable, gracious reward when the Christian endures sorrows, it says here, while suffering unjustly. What pleases God is when you patiently endure unjust suffering. When you continue to honor Him by submitting to those in authority above you. Again, Don't shoot the messenger. This is what God calls us to be. So what the issue at hand is here is first and foremost, as an employee, with somebody over you in authority, your goal in that job, first and foremost, is to be representative of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is wanting to make sure that these slaves, these servants understood when it came to unjust suffering. Verse 20. And what you have here is a contrast between unjust and just suffering. Notice verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Short and simple, there's no credit, no approval from God when you get what you deserve. That is being punished for sinning. Don't look for any credit for that. When this punishment takes place, it's deserved and there's no sympathy. There's no gracious thing in there. Notice the contrast. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this... uh, That shows up again, does it not? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Endure has the idea of enduring something with patience. It means to endure with bravery and to be calm, to persevere, to be patient under and to put up with. And here's something is unjust suffering. Notice when patient endurance pleases God. It's when it comes for doing what is good. But if when you do what is good and you suffer for it, that finds favor with God. If you're working for someone and you're working hard, you're giving your best, and you're doing it for the glory of God and you're still suffering unjustly, you're what? You're doing good. You're suffering for it. And God looks at that. That's His favor. That's a gracious thing. Because your witness is more important than your unjust suffering is. Once again, repeating myself, they say the third time is the charm. Don't shoot the messenger. Verses 21 through 25. Here's where this all comes together. Christians are called to suffer. Jesus is your example. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. In verse 21, Peter says something that gets our attention. Maybe even makes us uncomfortable. He says... As a Christian, you are to expect suffering. For to this refers to the patient enduring of unjust suffering. You were called to this. Now this word call refers to God's effectual salvation call that results in faith in Christ. So Peter is saying that believers are called to salvation and with that call they are to expect and do what? Endure suffering. It's going to happen. You're called to this. So what, what do we do with that idea? When you, when you suffer, remember, suffering is not a failure of God's plan. Suffering is not an obstacle to God's plan. Suffering is not God forgetting what He has promised. Suffering is not the result of God's unfaithfulness. Suffering is at the center of God's will for His people. It's a hard pill to swallow, right? You ever took one of them big old pills that you get a prescription, things about the size of my thumb, and you're figuring, how am I going to get this down? That's what you're thinking right now. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Because Christ also suffered for you. Suffering was the way chosen for Jesus, and since you have been called to be followers of Him, you can expect what? Suffering as well. Notice, Christ suffered for you. If you underline your Bible, underline for you. For means on behalf of. It tells us that Jesus' death was what? It was a substitutionary death. His death was in our place. Jesus, who was without sin, stood in our place, died the death required to bear your sins away. Jesus' attitude in His death on the cross was not, this is not fair. Instead, His attitude was, this suffering is for God's sake. It is for others. Could you imagine Jesus yelling from the cross, this is not fair? Notice verse 21, that Jesus' attitude in His death provides believers with the ultimate example of how to respond to unjust punishment, to suffering. This applies to suffering in general as well. 
Christ suffered for you, doing what? Leaving you what? What's the next word? An example. Example. Here's what that word... Let me give you an illustration of what that word means. How many of you remember in school, elementary school, when you tried to learn to write your alphabet? My teacher would take the, the, the printed alphabet and would give us a piece of paper that you could see through and we'd put it over the top of that alphabet and we'd do what? Trace those letters. That's what this word means. You, Christian, will never suffer in order to obtain salvation, but you will suffer for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus' example is your standard for God-honoring response to suffering. Notice the purpose of Jesus' example. So that you might what? What's the next word? Say it with me. Follow in His steps. Jesus left us the example so that we would do what? Follow it. If you want to know, here's the application. If you want to know how to patiently endure unjust suffering, Jesus is your example. Let me ask you this. Are you having difficulty at work? Uh, at school? With a family member? A spouse? Or someone who unjustly punishes you for your faith? We've all had that, right? Some of us are experiencing that right now, right? Let me give you some practical application. Spend time this week, listen, reading the gospel accounts of Jesus' death on the cross. Spend some time this week reading that. Read those accounts of Jesus and His death on the cross. And then go to Isaiah 53 and read Isaiah 53. And stop and ask yourself, how does Jesus respond? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12 through verse 14. Peter shows you how you should respond to unjust suffering. I kind of hesitate to go there because we'll be there at some point in time and then we'll get to talk about it again. But notice what it says. Beloved, do not be, what does it say? Surprised at the fiery trial. What's the next word? Is it if? No, it's when it comes upon you to test you. Not to see whether you are a believer or not, but to grow your faith. Upon you to test you as though something, what's the next word? Strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Let's talk about when Christ comes back for His people. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, what's the next three words? You are blessed. You're going. I will never put those words in there. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. Do you hear that? The Spirit of glory. I think that's referring to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of glory and of God. What does it do? It sets upon your life. It rests upon your life. You're blessed because in unjust suffering, who's there with you? The Spirit of God and God Himself. What are you to do? I think it's pretty clear. Don't be surprised. Keep rejoicing and follow Jesus' example.
And let me, let me give you just practical here, okay? All of us suffer, right? Don't waste your suffering. Suffering will come. Don't be surprised. That's what Peter said, right? It's not some strange thing. Don't be surprised when it comes because it is going to come. So don't waste it. Right? Let me ask you this. What opportunities right now in the situations, locations, and relationships where God has placed you, is He calling you to preach the Gospel with the way that you live in those situations? Verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile or in turn. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Peter is quoting from Isaiah 53 here to show Jesus did not retaliate when He was unjustly suffering. Notice four things. Four things that we need to keep in mind when we're treated unfairly. First, Jesus did not commit sin. He always acted in obedience to the Father, never within His own self-will. Number two, there was never any deceit in His mouth. He didn't bend the facts to win the argument or get His way. He was always truthful. Number three, when He was reviled, what does it say? He didn't revile in return. He didn't trade insults with them. You remember how they were insulting Jesus? How they'd come by and what they were saying to Him when they were flogging Him and then when they'd come by and made the comments when He was hanging on the cross? What did Jesus do? He didn't revile them in return, did He? Fourth, He didn't threaten. He didn't say, just you wait, I'll get even with you. That's what we'd like to say, right? Every dog has its day. What goes around comes around, right? And by the way, those are not in the Bible. If you think those are verses in the Bible, boy, you've missed it. They're not there. Jesus didn't respond to verbal abuse with more verbal abuse. Instead, Luke tells us, listen, He was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That person who is unjustly treating you, causing you suffering, they have no idea what they're doing. Does that give them an excuse? No. But what, here's what I'm telling you. Lost people act like lost people, right? How could Jesus do such? How could He do... How can we do the same? Notice verse 23. But continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. What did Jesus do? He entrusted Himself to God. That word means to hand over, to give to another's power or use, rather than trying to retaliate. Jesus entrusted, He turned both Himself and His enemies over to God to judge them. In other words, the whole situation, Jesus gave it to who? God. Those who harm Jesus and those who harm you will have to answer to God who judges with justice and perfection. You know when you judge people, you know what's wrong with you judging people? Because you don't do it, what? With perfection. And for that reason, you don't have to avenge yourself because God will do all that. 
Because He is what? The one who judges justly. He will do it right. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, listen, leave it to the wrath of God. Whoa. We know what that word means, right? Leave it to the righteous wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who's going to repay that unjust suffering that you're experiencing? God's going to do it. Don't you avenge yourselves, but leave it to the what? The wrath of God. God's judgment is coming one day upon all who unjustly make people suffer. It's coming. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Peter is going back to Isaiah 53. He himself is emphatic. Jesus... Listen, Jesus and no one else deserves credit for the work of salvation. He he Himself did this. How was it accomplished? Notice it says He bore our sins in His body. That word bore is very important. It means to carry a heavy, massive weight. What was the heavy, massive weight that Jesus bore? Our sins. Stop and think about it. If you never trust Jesus, the wrath of God is upon you. If you die in that state, God's wrath is upon you for whose sins? Your sins. But on the cross, the wrath of God was on Jesus for every sin that has ever been committed. you imagine what that weight was like? He bore our sins. In other words, God counted our sins against Jesus and punished Him with all that wrath for our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus died for you. He took your sins so that you might what? Receive the righteousness that God looks upon and says, Not guilty. Verse 24, He bore our sins in His body. Notice it says, On the tree... Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Jesus become what for us? A curse. God's curse was upon us, but Jesus did what? He stood in our place. He took that curse. It says, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The word that or so that tells us the purpose of Jesus' death there. He bore our sins so that we, what? Might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because of Jesus bearing our sins, salvation has been applied to believers. Those who turn from sin and trust in the work of Christ, that's been applied to you. Believers are now dead to sin because of Jesus taking our sin. Believers are alive. They are alive now to righteousness. Here's the idea behind that. Righteousness is able to be lived out in your life now. Jesus died so that you might live righteously. As a Christian, you are now able not to sin. Before, that was not the case. Now you are not able to sin. More specifically, when suffering, you're able not to revile in return and sin against those who punish you. 
Peter describes this death to sin and becoming alive to righteousness as a healing. Notice what it says. By His wounds... Man, you have been healed. Wounds refer to all the suffering that caused Jesus' death. And healed doesn't mean physical healing. In fact, it claims something much better. Spiritual healing and forgiveness. That's what it's talking about. Verse 25. Why was that the case? For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Verse 25 tells us why we needed healing. It was because we as unrepentant sinners were guilty of straying and wandering. And God in His glorious grace, as we were running away from Him, straying away from Him, reached out and grabbed us and pulled us back. Straying has the idea of a dangerous, helpless wandering. Before you came to Christ, that's what you were. Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath that was directed at our sinful wandering. Look again at verse 25. For you are like sheep, but now... Excuse me, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Have returned. It's in the passive voice, meaning that something outside of you did the returning. In other words, it was God's initiative to bring wandering sheep to Jesus. You had no desire for that. You could care less. And God is the one who reached out and took the initiative and drew you to Christ. And for the persecuted Christian here, Jesus is what? He's shepherd and He's overseer. That word overseer means to to be a guardian. In other words, Jesus is the protector of those who know Him. The shepherd cares for. Listen, He cares for and He protects the sheep while the overseer watches over and guards them. And just a side note, when we get to chapter 5, It's very interesting that Peter applies both of these titles to the pastor. Just kind of setting you up for that. Conclusion. Repeating myself, suffering is not God forgetting what He's promised. Suffering is not the result of God's unfaithfulness. Suffering is at the center of God's will for His people. So what do we do? When suffering unjustly, Christian, you are to submit to those in authority over you. You're to endure patiently and you're to follow the example of Jesus. You never, ever suffer outside the care of your Redeemer because He has drawn you to Himself. You are His sheep. If you're God's child, it's impossible for you to be in a situation, a location, a circumstance, a relationship that is outside of God's care for you. Lastly, this attitude towards suffering is only going to happen. Listen to me. It's only going to happen when Jesus is the most valuable treasure in your life. When there's nothing more important than Him, nothing more important than His honor, nothing more valuable to you than His presence and His love and His grace. And when you worship Jesus in that way, God is pleased. God is honored. Let's pray.